0: Today on Sagittarian Matters, we talk comics, advice, world building, food, tools, and more with award-winning cartoonist Bishak Som. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters Sagittarian Bishak Some is the author of two graphic novels which both came out in 2020. She used to be an architect who changed her life completely and dedicated herself to comics in New York City in her 40s. Bishak's short story collection, Apsara Engine* won the LA Times Book Prize for Graphic Literature. She also has a graphic memoir called Spellbound. Bishak's work explores themes of gender, sexuality, memory, and urbanism, among other things. Her website states, on a formal level, some of my pieces conflate the tools of architectural representation with those of sequential narrative in order to question these very methods and offer new means of representing space, time, and the role of the body in both simultaneously. Bishak joined me through the magic of the internet to talk about her books, food, transcartography, world building, comics tools, advice, and more. Now please enjoy my talk with award-winning cartoonist, Bishak Salm. Before we get to listener questions, I was just listening to an interview where you said you got ripped, bagged on by the New York Times for adding so much food, but I feel like you could have even included recipes, like 15 recipes in there because everything I was reading, especially, so there's a moment where your character has kind of these austerity cooking measures of like eating stocks and things. And it just felt very much like something I would do in any time. I just can't carry with me a kind of depression era relationship to food and leftovers and
1: you and me both, yeah.
0: And I I really appreciate that. But all the food you talk about is so delicious sounding. And I was so happy to hear I was happy to see the character taking care of herself in that way, amidst the isolation of the cartoonist, which is also quite relatable.
1: It is it is funny when, you know, that whole business of the times not understanding they called it a litany or something of, of uh, cataloging of food. Or and I'm like I mean, it's so easy to say you missed the point, but it is the point, you know, and I'm so glad that you picked up on it um, and that other people have picked up on on the food because it really was like a sub theme to the book. And it's the way that she organizes her life and the way that she takes care of herself, as you mentioned. But also it's like this inheritance that she gets from her parents because and I think I mentioned in the book how like Bengalis and Indians in general are very food focused. Um, and they just can't help but use food as a sort of um, intermediary you know, during conversations or as intermediaries in re- in relation and familial relationships, and that's something she tries to avoid, but can- is unable to, so she inherits that, you know? And I think I've inherited it to some degree as well, um, in the sense also that, like, when actually I was going to say when the pandemic started but this was when I started working from home before the pandemic and you know became an artist as it were or was starting to evolve into an artist and I thought well you know I have the wherewithal to do this for a year or year and a half but I have to cut down on a lot of extravagances which means no more like going out for lunch and this is when that whole thing started with the like the cauliflower stalks, which is something I actually, I just made, um, I'm getting better at it, but yeah, there is a panel where Anjali's like, oh, this, you know, this cauliflower stalk curry is just, is so useless, and I've been trying so hard to make this work, but it tastes awful, and, um, and I did feel that myself at one point while I was going through this process of, like, austerity plus artistic ambition, um, And it was, it was a way for me to think about, um, what I had, what I had, like, and what I could spend money on what I could do to feed myself and be a sort of self-sustaining person. Um, and that's, yeah, a lot of the cataloging comes from that idea that, like, that I had to cut down on stuff and just be a little more, uh, frugal with, like, not frugal, like, uh, I had to be more aware of of how I went about my day and so th- that's where that cataloging comes from but um I think I have found a way to make the cauliflower stalks a, a, a little more tasty um, and
0: what is it I think
1: it's just to fry the hell out of them
0: <laughs> do you bread them or anything or you just
1: no no they're, they're part of a bigger like I make a giant pot of for lack of a better term curry but it's you know, it's just a vegetable, Indian-style vegetable extravaganza, and part of that are these cauliflower stalks, which I cannot bring myself to throw away. You know, and as you were saying, this Depression-era kind of mentality—that's like, that's food right there, and I'm not going to like—it's half of the cauliflower that you get, and I really didn't want to throw it away. And I finally found out there is an actual Bengali dish that involves focusing on the cauliflower stalk. So I'm like, oh, it's not just me; it's like my heritage. You know, it's like propelling me into using these cauliflower stalks as part of my menu. Um,
0: you were heeding an ancient call. Don't throw them away. Don't, keep them.
1: <laughs> such a waste. And also, the, like the tender part of the broccoli, or like the, the stem, is like. Even Jacques Pepin says it's his favorite part. So who might argue?
0: This is good to know because I feel when I'm throwing that part away now, I'm just like, no, God, there's got to be more to this. Because I know like, you know, it's a brassica and with kale stalks, I'm happy to cut those really fine and include them Mm -hmm. in something and just cook them longer. So why would I eschew their, you know, their cousin, the broccoli stalk?
1: Don't. They're gorgeous. You just peel... like the outer part and then you can steam them or or saute them or whatever don't boil them um but they're gorgeous they're they're lovely it's my favorite part of the broccoli oh
0: my god someday if i have a specifically queer food podcast or something you have to come on and make i will do this something or talk about Mm -hmm, something mm mm-hmm because I really I mean, I honestly I was like, when I was hearing you say that thing about the New York Times bag, I was just like, what are they talk what are they talking about? What is the New York Times talking about? Like, they loved the book Relish by Lucy Nisley. They love uh, Crying in the H Mart. Like all these books that involve so much food description, so much food uh-huh. as part of like a tapestry of talking about family and heritage and culture. And I just was like, what, what's the problem? The problem, the only problem for me is that I want like 50 more pages about the food. <laughs> Why would they? <laughs> like there's, there you could talk about food in that book endlessly. You could add like 100 more pages of just illustrated recipes and I would be there for it. But I love the books and we have listener questions. I can give you a food question if you want.
1: Yeah, that would be great.
0: Dear Sagittarian Matters, can you, so this person's asking me, can you please share your tahini salad dressing? I will share it with this listener. But in the meantime, as I'm saying this, if you have a a a go-to sauce, a go-to dressing, a go-to anything. Be thinking of that really, you know, if you have anything in your head that's like your go-to either sauce or dressing. A tahini salad dressing. This person might be talking about the one from friend of the show Morgan. Mine if I was going to make a tahini salad dressing, I would add some tahini, the smoothest kind you can find a little bit of soy sauce, garlic, ginger if you're lucky, and then lemon juice or lime juice or vinegar. And you could add nutritional yeast or pepper if you want to, but just mix that up. It's just like very, very simple. I mean, if you wanna add even more things to make it chunkier, like green onion or something wonderful, but you can use that for a salad. You'd be happy about it.
1: That sounds delicious.
0: Okay. I'm a real tahini fan, really big tahini fan. Could use it all day.
1: Oh, so you want to hear, you want to know about my go-to. Okay, it's not exactly a go-to, but it is something I've been working on and developing, which is um, uh, a sort of gravy for vegetable dishes. So, like, you can steam a bunch of vegetables or saute them and then keep them separately and then then create this gravy, like an Indian-style gravy, that you then um, let... That you then pour the vegetables into and let that simmer for a long time. But the gravy itself is interesting. It's, um, it's based on a Bengali dish called Bosto. And I've sort of judged it up with my own, uh, sort of mashed up other ideas. So basically it's mustard seeds, um, what's it, uh, poppy seeds, uh, chili, uh, ginger, garlic, and my last addition, which I tried yesterday, was tomatoes, so like just chopped tomatoes, and you blitz that whole thing, um, And then I, I chop some onions separately, fry those, and as the, when the onions get nice and sort of tender and brown, then you pour this blitzed um, s- sauce in, and you and add some water or stock, and you develop that into a gravy, which then becomes a bath for these other, which, for the vegetables that you've prepared um, or pre- and then you just let it sit for a long time and then all the vegetables absorb the gravy and it becomes this lovely little spa.
0: <laughs> oh my God, this is a delicious veggie spa. Yeah, it is. Do you add anything else to thicken it up or does it just kind of do its own thing? It's
1: pretty thick. The, the paste is thick because of the ginger and the garlic. Um,
0: mm. Add
1: some onion to make it even th- And then the tomato makes it more- um, less paste like and more sauce like but um it's pretty thick like you have to dilute it actually to get it to be um more of a bath you
0: know this is so exciting thank you for your gravy recipe listener you just got way more you just got way more than what you you got like a bogo (laughs) you got a way better sauce than the one you've heard me talk about all the time this is exciting (laughs) dear Sagittarian matters okay This person wants this. I'm going to read you the question, then we can distill it. Okay. I have a couple questions about comics. It's actually three. One, would love to see a full list of tools used to create. Two, thoughts on effective ways to connect with illustrators if you are a writer. Three, any tips for world building in the comic medium? All right. So, the tools. What? So tools. I like to use a lot of different tools. In my comics, I use a regular pencil. I use whatever I want to do when I'm Thumbnailing. For pages, I use a regular pencil. Blue pencils. My eyesight isn't good enough to see them later on. Um, I used to use Rapidograph, but I had to break up with them. It was an abusive relationship. It was so hard. Same. I started using Microns again at some point, which I had like gotten so upset with Microns, and then I had to come back to them when I was stuck in the middle of a book in my Rapidograph thing just broke up mm-hmm. um i like to i like a pentel pocket brush mm-hmm. or an actual brush like a teeny weeny little brush and some ink i don't know i can't tell you the size or shape or anything <laughs> um sometimes i'll use a dip pen if i have to and then i like to make gray wash just by adding some ink to little dishes of water
1: um that's what, I, what do you use so i use a dumb old uh what's this called uh Papermate, sharp writer, it's just this dumb in you know, one of these things. Um, but I also use it depends on what stage I am at at the penciling. So I also use traditional like um Stadler Mars pencils, like two Bs or six Bs to do looser work. And then I go if to do the tighter pencils, like I use just this thing. Um, yeah, the paper mate. Um and then I I also use microns, but only for detailed work. Like Mm-hmm. If there's an eye or whatever in the, di- like a, a medium shot with a, and an eye that I just can't do with a brush. So, and I use, um, I use brushes. Um, I use, uh, I guess a fake sable Kolinsky fakes Kolinsky sable brush number two or whatever. Um, and I use, uh, like Dr. Martin's, uh, what's this? High carb black star ink.
0: Mm, me too. yeah,
1: it's the best Sarah Varon turned me onto this. And um, yeah, I, I do all that on uh, if I'm doing watercolor washes, then I draw right on watercolor paper. If I'm scanning and doing digital colors, then I draw on Bristol board and scan that. And for gray washes, I use um, like four different or three different shades of uh, gray gouache or watercolor and dilute and or do layers of gray to build up darkness, um, layers of dark. Um, and then digital colors are, you know, I don't know if that's, that, yeah, that's another conversation altogether. But yeah, those those are basically my materials.
0: I also use a fake Kalinski brush because I don't know if you're vegetarian. I was kind of... I am. Me too. And I just, like, Kalinsky, it's just like a fur farm. It's just like people... Trim and a, a, Kalinsky's like a ferret or a mink. Yeah.
1: And at some point, yeah, I don't know why it took me so long to realize that. Um, but I'm sorry for all the times that I, all the years that I did use a, a real one. Um, but anyway, yeah, I use a fake one now. so it's.
0: At some point I got a faux squirrel brush, which is, I just thought it was such a funny name of a brush. And I, I was like, maybe I should do a comic called faux squirrel, but I don't know. You
1: should do it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't even know what it would be. Um, do you have any tips on for world building in the comic medium? That's hard. I mean, I I honestly I feel more I mean, I personally I do these Linda Berry writing exercises mm-hmm. for lots of things, including times, people, punk houses, or events mm-hmm. where I will think of the place, you know, wherever the place I've and I'll do this kind of thing where I kind of drop in and I remember everything in a memory that's like in front of me and below me and to my sides. And I try to absorb every single detail of that or of my experience with a person's. And then I do it that way. But like, I see a lot of people get stuck in world building of like research and like language and backstories. And it's a nice procrastination method to never actually do a comic.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's so tough. I don't know what to, quite what to say. I'm I'm teaching a class at SVA on storytelling this semester and, I think this question has come up like when do you stop world building uh, or how far can you go in order for them to be to be able to tell a story and not just have this like background or a, I don't want to use the word background but you know like this world that has nothing going and there's no story inhabiting that world right um I'm really not sh- I don't know if I can offer tips because I'm still trying to figure it out you know um The best I can say is keep a, keep a sketchbook or a notebook and just dot and I don't know keep a catalog of like details. I mean, I'm thinking architectural details and or environmental details or interior details, and then I don't know how like crazy you have to go with like creating like you know a D and D manual uh, with this entire world and f- for you to then start writing a story i would just focus on the story and then um and sort of think of how the environments can can serve the story but i don't know that sounded that just sounds dumb to me now i don't know i don't know that i it's a great question but i don't know quite how to answer it
0: i would say i think to build off of what you're saying about a sketchbook I find a lot of students, if they're a little insecure about their drawing, they'll try to spend forever making documents about their world. And so I would encourage them to take that sketchbook that you're having them keep with them and like do as much drawing as you can of the world. Cause at a certain point that will just compel you to, you're gonna have to draw the thing a million times. So you gotta get really comfortable drawing the thing. You can't spend two hours on one drawing that then you can't make move that's a hard part i mean okay like right now um, i'm working oh go go
1: ahead. I oh i was gonna say this you know this new project that i'm working on which is um well to just give us very like brief description of it it's ostensibly a travel guide and uh but it's a travel guide to an imaginary city and then it's it sort of fails at being a travel guide so that's the conceit of the book but um I've been watching a lot of travel shows and like if there's an image that strikes me on, on TV or like as part of a program, I'll try to somehow capture that image as inspiration. I've been keeping a catalog of these images that are inspiration and maybe that inspirational image will then um, sort of launch a chapter in the book, but it it's just inspiration. It's not like a, me- it's not like, A strategy to create an entire scenario it's just a way to say maybe there is a a temple with these grounds that the characters are going to sort of wander through but you don't have to like catalog every single detail of this place you know it's not like you have to create a model of it or or you know this is not like a tolkien-esque kind of endeavor so i i would say be loose about it as well you know don't let the world building dominate the process
0: i think that's really smart You know, I had a question that I forgot to ask you, but you – so you published – may I ask, how old are you? (laughs) Oh,
1: God. I'm 53.
0: This is inspiring to me because people write. – I'm 40. Okay. People write all the time to the podcast and want to know – like, oh, I'm 36, yeah. I'm too old to pick up a new craft, or to like, like people have this idea of you having to have been in your art since you were like a Beyonce style kind of like, uh-huh. you know, your parents are putting you on stage as a young person and then you got there. But I find so a lot of my favorite artists, their books came out when they were after their 30s. And I just want to tell listeners like, oh my gosh, she just put out two books just now like you i mean you worked on them for a very long time and you're a professional artist in the architectural arts for a long time but i just feel like it's never too late to just do the thing you want to do
1: absolutely and yeah that's that's what spellbound is all about is like dropping one thing to do another but it's not like you can't do that in your i mean at the time i was in my 40s right when i quit architecture so yeah i was like you know no i'm going to do this no matter what because that's the one thing I've got going like this is the one thing I'm good at, you know, and it was not architecture, um, but also I think you know I've been drawing since I was a kid, so this is something that's always been part of my life. It's just that I got waylaid in the middle with thinking I had to do something professional, um, and it was only a, uh, it was only circumstances like you know my family, mainly my family, um, not. Being there to sort of, for me to feel guilty about that, um, led me uh, and my and my boss uh, sort of imploding, um, for all of those things to come together in order for me to be able to to have the courage to make a switch, you know. And that did happen in my forties, but it can happen at any time for anybody, you know. Luckily, I, hadn't. I had I had this like plan B. All along, it's just that it took a bunch of life um, swerves in life in order for me to be able to realize that plan.
0: I, I really, I really appreciate that, and I appreciate your kind of transparency in your work. of being like, okay, I, from life circumstances, I had this time. Mm-hmm. I like was able to have time yeah. to sit and work on this thing I had always wanted to work mm-hmm. on, and I think. You know, even for me, I, you know, I like I got, I always wanted to be a freelancer. I know that sounds like, I've always (laughs) wanted to be a freelancer. But I, it took me getting like a swath of money from a job to have the courage to leave one of my day jobs to say, okay, I have this long. I have six months to figure out a way to make this financially sustainable. This money's buying me six months. But it wasn't like a publisher came to my door with a publish, publisher's clearinghouse check <laughs> and said, this money's going to change your life, right, kid. Right. Like, that's not what happened. I had to find that for myself by taking some kind of lucrative job or having some kind of you know thing uh-huh. happen where there was enough money yeah, to buy a little That's money.
1: exactly what it was. For, in my case, it was um, coming into some money from from deaths in my family. So it was like, uh, yeah, I'm very thankful for that. I mean, if, even if it involved uh, losing, you know, I basically have no more family in, in the States. Um, but the upside of that, if you can say that, is that it allowed, it bought me some time and it bought me the privilege and opportunity to do what I've always wanted to do my whole life. And... Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a very um, fortuitous uh, coming together of, of life events, um, which sounds corny, but yeah, it happened, you know.
0: Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't wish the death upon you, but I'm very happy that you were able to make this beautiful work with those resources and that time. Today's episode is brought to you by Rachel Jolie, Colleen Garland, Emily Helmis, Shoshana Ruth Wector, and Joey Stolloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, to HornetLeg at gmail.com on PayPal. Via PayPal, it's Hornet Like the Insect, Leg Like It's Appendage at Gmail. Or This just in. He's got a Venmo. Hell books on Venmo. That's H-E, double hockey sticks, books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. Okay, so... Apsara came. It uh, came out, you were working on that book first, but how many years did it take you from writing your first story that was going to be in that book to finishing drawing it? Forget even like the publication schedule.
1: It's a little hard to say because the stories in that book started off as short stories that I just wrote. Um, some of them had been self-published as mini-comics. Some had just, I wrote with no intention of, or no idea where, how they would end up, where they would end up. But they're all, um, the earliest story is quite old. I think I remember starting it in something like 2003. But, you know, it wasn't a sustained effort at all. Like these stories came and went um, sporadically between like 2003 and by the time feminist press picked it up but I was doing all this other stuff in between. So it was just intermittent attempts at writing stories. And then at some point I thought I had enough material um, to collect into a book. And that's when I started thinking of these stories as a sort of book-shaped entity, you know. Um, But even after that, even after Feminist Press agreed to take it on, I went back and redrew I would say like 70% of the book because of the time it had taken for these stories to come together, you know, and my uh, drawings from 2003 were certainly not as good as um, my, you know, what I was able to do in 2000, I don't know, 15 or 16 or 17. Um, So I was like, I can't publish, you know, I can't have these really kind of almost uh, like juvenilia out there. So I went back and redrew all of it. So it looked more of a piece. Um, and then I wrote another story, uh, which is Swan Dive, which um, is the only story that really represents me as an author after coming out as trans, you know, um, the rest were written before that. So, and I think if you read the book, you can sort of sense that, that there's a sort of, uh, not a gap, but there's a, there's a movement towards a certain sensibility a certain more queer and trans sensibility with that story specifically.
0: It's so beautiful. Thank you. Oh, all of your work is so beautiful, but it also really makes me want to see the 2003 version two, like the cutting room floor. No, no,
1: no. No, no no, no one will ever see that. (laughs) Really? It's so bad. I mean, no, it's not. But the anatomy is off, all the gestures, the body language, it's just off. You know, and I learned so much in the interim. It's, I mean, I know everyone says that about their early work, but like, it's really, it's just painful to look at. It's tucked away in a box somewhere.
0: Oh my gosh. Uh Well, maybe like someday if you ever had a retrospective, there could be like a room where someone had to have a key or a password Uh uh or something. And you'd Mm -hmm. be like, you can go in there for 30 seconds. Right. Mm -hmm. You can glance at this. And then sign- you're escorted out by a. Right, right,
1: right, right. you have to sign an NDA and yeah, and you're like ushered out by armed security or something.
0: Maybe you even get like a, a poof of some kind of ether or some kind of like something to clear your memory afterwards. Uh huh, uh uh-huh, Yeah. But you just get that moment of being like,
1: oh. Oh, these are terrible.
0: Yeah. The evolution of the art. I know. Well, right. I felt that. I felt like when I was writing Calling Dr. Laura, I didn't get my sea legs until six months or something into inking the book or drawing uh-huh. the, So like page one to the epilogue yeah. is so different. Yeah. And when I first looked, it made me want to barf when I first looked at it, like just even a year later after making the um, proposal story. But now I, now I feel like I kind of, I'm like, okay, this is just an archive of what was happening then. But unlike you, I did not have the energy to go back and redraw it or else I would have, but also maybe I would have never stopped drawing because as I would draw uh, yeah, things yeah, and get just better, I would, you, you could just be in an eternal loop and be like, I'm just going to redo this. <laughs> I know something today that I didn't know two months ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just, I want everything to look like this tool.
1: Exactly. Yeah. No, luckily I didn't get stuck in that cycle, but I'm happy with the amount I was able to repair for lack of a better way of putting it, you know?
0: Well, your work does look really consistent. It looks really lovely. The body, like your figure drawing is so lovely. The bodies are so lovely. The way people are drawn and the movement. It just, I really, I mean, I can see the attention to detail and the consistency through all the drawings. And then, of course, I can't help but wonder how your architecture training or career informs all the landscapes and world building uh-huh. that that exist in your books.
1: So, I mean, on a very like fundamental or basic level, just having the, having had the education to be propelled into like imagining spaces and being having to represent those spaces on paper by drawing, which is not the case anymore in a lot of architecture schools because so much of it is computer aided, right? Um, but having the, having to draw with pen and paper and pencil um, overlaps obviously really nicely with comics because it's the same tools. Um, but also just having, having had to um, participate in, a, in strategies of representing space allowed me to be more conversant with drawing the environments that or my characters inhabit whether or not they're banal, you know. Instead, so like I can draw, I can imagine more clearly, um, like just the interior of, of one of the characters' apartments, or the kitchen, or the living room. But the other thing that architecture school did for me was, you know, at, at a certain point, you kind of are you are you are encouraged to imagine spaces and buildings and forms, and it's a it, it's a time in one's life when you are it's okay to to be a little wild and to um, propose structures that are not necessarily uh, feasible or structurally sound, but to work on them as proposals of, of the imagination. And at some point that drops out because you end up with a job at a place where you have to, you know, design bathrooms with toilets that function and sinks and, you know, all the like nitty gritty, and then all the sort of imagination is drained right out of it. And I think that's main. That's a lot of what ejected me out of the practice of architecture. But luckily, I was able to channel all that back into comics. And so that's you know all that sort of stirring of the the imaginative thought uh, that happened in grad school was then I could take that energy. That's the part I liked about architecture school. Take that and and transfer it to my comics and art practice. Um, so that's yeah. It was it was a fortunate kind of um, progression for me. You know, I could have just let it go completely, but I found a way to find a hybrid space between architecture and comics and art, and, and that's something I'm really interested in developing um, as a practice. It, it
0: look it just it looks so incredible, and I. I mean I don't even I don't even know. So one of your one of your characters was speaking at length about was it queer cartography or trans cartography mm-hmm. and just like mm-hmm. map making yeah. and our paths. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, originally that whole there's a speech at the beginning of the story Swan Dive, where one of the characters, it turns out, is giving a presentation at an academic panel and she's talking about trans geographies and trans cartography. And initially I wrote that whole spiel as a sort of, um, honestly, I didn't know what I was talking about, but the more I wrote it um, as, as if it was her voice, I mean, it is her voice, but I wrote it initially to make her seem a little highfalutin and, and pretentious. But the more I wrote it, the more I was like, wait a minute, maybe there's something here. And, I think you know it translates obviously into the second half of or latter half of that story where there the the issue of map making comes into play. Um, and I think it it does tie back to her spiel about trans geographies and cartographies, but it becomes something much more intuitive and sensual and not as cerebral, and that's that's the that was the core of the story to begin with, right? It was this idea that you can use drawing and um, map-making or architecture, these tools to create imaginary worlds, specifically queer and trans um, sort of utopias, right? You can will them into being through the act of drawing, um, which is what they end up doing. They put it into practice, right? And that whole spiel at the beginning about trans geographies was meant to be a sort of foregrounding of that, but also um, a kind of more intellectualization of that process and the more i the more the story came into being the more those two things sort of collapsed into each other um but yeah it's like you know the inspiration for that story was the way queer and trans folks like create worlds that don't exist for themselves because they have to it's almost like a survival mechanism it's a way of creating culture and a way of divining, defining ourselves, you know. And that act of imagination was something I wanted to distill and represent through what I do, which is, you know, as a as a practice, which is drawing. And I think there are parallel practices, and I wanted to sort of represent that, um, how those two things are parallel or concurrent, you know.
0: When you were saying defining, you kind of almost said divining, and I was like, you're doing both, you're doing both. <laughs> It, it just it reminded me so much too of like Edie Fakes work, of creating these like these spaces on the page. Yeah, these fantasy spaces, even out of architecture that ex- used to exist and what it could be. And it also reminds me a lot of times on the podcast we talk about um, like queer failure or how queer people aren't following this measure of you know here's a life here's the steps to life and by this age you're at this point Mm -hmm. and that we get to make our own paths Mm -hmm. and not judge ourselves against that kind of heteronormative framework of yes here's a life and so I really I don't even know if I have anything like incredible to say about that but I just really love that tie-in of all of those ideas together
1: thank you and I guess I I should say I'm like that it's it's a theme that I'm that I've I find myself immersed in uh, a lot, and I'm trying to develop those themes of, of utopia, of imagination, of not necessarily of drawing, but of queer utopias, and I'm trying to expand that. Um, so I'm working on a third book now that is hopefully going to take the sort of ideas that were um, kernels or germs in, in Dive and expand it into an entire book.
0: How has your practice changed since, okay, so you drew, and we will have to, we have to circle back to Spellbound in a second, but how has your process changed since when you first started imagining the short stories from Apsara Engine to then working on Spellbound kind of while you were waiting and, you know, doing this to now?
1: Honestly, I'm, uh, that's something I'm going to have to confront as I'm working on this third book. Like the projects I worked on after the two books were published were small, sort of finite um, contributions. To I did a I did a short story for the Georgia Review. Um, I did a story for Eflux Journal, um, and I just finished a story for the Boston Review. But all of those are short stories that are bite sized, and I kind of know how to handle that because I've done those. Um, you know, that's how I started Upsara Engine, right? Uh, so I'm not sure how my process has changed. I won't know until I confront or I'm, until I figure out a way to make this third book into something more than just notes in my sketchbook, which is, it, which is what it is right now. Um, so be my first attempt at a sustained, uh, continuous narrative other than Spellbound, which is a memoir, so it's a different project altogether. But yeah, I'm 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 anxious and but also excited to see how I tackle something of this scale, um, a narrative project of this scale, because I kind of don't know how to do it. So that's you know I I would like to know the answer to your question as well. So I'm going to have to find out. Um, it's a, little, it's a little daunting. Even right now, I'm trying to figure out how to draw the thing, like whether I should use my usual Upsara engine watercolors or not, and I'm, I'm starting to think maybe not. Maybe I should do it digitally, or I don't know. I'm still trying to work it out. So I'm looking at a lot of other artists to see like what the possibilities are and, uh, and to see how I should tailor my process to this new you know, future strategy.
0: It's really hard to yeah. figure out. Uh-huh. I'm I'm proposing a couple books right now and I really want to draw them different than my style that I've drawn uh-huh. other books in. Uh-huh. Because it seems fun. Yeah. And because I've kind of beat the fun out of from my memory of drawing those books, which is like labor or something. Yes. I I feel like I beat the fun out of like inking with ink and using gray wash and uh-huh. having to get rid of the pencils and then the oh, like the laborious Photoshop. Yeah. And then like the Photoshop kind of levels of like, oh, I want the black to be black, but yes. I want to maintain the gray wash. But you and me I both. Just,
1: that's exactly what I go through.
0: Yeah. I so, But then I, you know, I'm like, I'm just going to draw a whole book in pencil. And <laughs> but I have a compulsive element in me that just mm-hmm. after I've drawn it in pencil is like, not enough.
1: Yeah, Keeps exactly. going. Yeah, me too, me too. Yeah, I, I, I sometimes don't know when to stop either, but I'm trying to find a happy medium where I can not stifle myself with this new project, you know, and I can have some sense of progress and not kind of hinder, get in front of myself and, you know, create roadblocks because of my own psyche.
0: I mean, that's the thing, is that the call's always coming from inside the house. It's like, I'm like, everybody's going to know, nobody wants me to draw this in pencil. Every- and I'm just like... <laughs> nobody cares. I'm like, I'm going to draw my characters with different eyes. That's crazy. And I'm just like, nobody cares.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know.
0: <laughs> There's a council in my mind.
1: Exactly. Yesterday I was drawing like character sketches for this the third book. And I'm like, and I was thinking about eyes too. And I'm like, do I, should I just use like dots <laughs> or should I do like full on eyes or, you know, and I was like, is this a like, big decision? I'm like, yeah, it kind of is. So I was like, no, I, I think I'm going to go to sleep because I can't make this decision now, you know?
0: It's too late. I have a I have a rule sometimes that after 10 p.m. I have uh-huh. the will, but not the way. Uh-huh. Where after 10 p.m., I'll be like, just ink it. You can ink it. And it but if I, I will start making mistakes or start making broad proclamations that then later in the light of day, I'm like, what have I done?
1: Oh, yeah. No, I never ink after a certain point. Like, it's... I think my cutoff is like seven. Uh, Yeah, inking, forget it. That has to be in the light of day.
0: Well, for what it's worth, I really like the way you draw eyeballs.
1: Oh, thank uh... you. No one's ever said that
0: to me. Oh my God, I was noticing it because all your characters have a similar look to them no matter who they are. Like you have a very distinct style of drawing characters. Uh-huh. And as I was reading your books again, I was like, I think part of a really strong part of it is the eyes and the eye uh-huh. placement and just uh-huh. where the eyes are is really, it's, it was, it's really one of my favorite things.
1: Thank you. Thank you. That's why, that's, what that's why I was concerned about just to make drawing them as dots as I did in Spellbound. Like it was shorthand, but I also like that, you know, I think it's like, I just just looking at other people's work i'm like this works you know and I, it retains a kind of um i don't know well there's a cute quality to it which i like but but also you know you can do so much with expression even if they're just dots but i do miss like as you know i i do miss drawing full-on eyes and and sort of um you know coal lined eye, eyeliner you know and and eyebrows and 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 really going into the fine details of a face. So I'm still trying to figure that one
0: out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would support your work even if they were just, even if they were dots, <laughs> as I <would> <laughs> Just all just dots. Just giving a, a, yeah, just all dots. It's a, it's a well, new pointless so
1: project. Right?
0: Well, I, I would read that too. I would look forward to that, that entire project. Well, so when you finished Apsara Engine on your own, is that when you picked up Spellbound? because you had that kind of vacuum of time and space. How did that project begin?
1: Yeah, it was after I sent out the first manuscript for Upsara Engine to, like, the big three, which um, they've probably changed by now, but, you know, like, fanographics and Drawn Quarterly and Top Shelf, and I was waiting for replies from them, and I was like, I'm not sure what to do now. So I started just, like, keeping a diary comic, which I had never done in my life um but you know as i say in in the book i, I couldn't bring myself to draw myself into my into my diary comic so i created this other character and honestly it was just it was just more like therapy for me rather than anything with a long-term plan um and i don't remember at what point it became something more sustained like i think uh, I think I was going to do a reading at the Poetry Project and I wasn't sure what to read so I did the there's a chapter in Spellbound where I or Anjali goes back to India um, to move her parents there and it's a, like a 23 page chapter and that was the longest I'd considered doing an episode of Spellbound but um, once i finished that as as uh, so, has in order to have something for this reading, I was like, oh, wait a minute, I can actually make this more than just a collection of diary comics. It can be something more, uh, I don't know, continuous or uh, less episodic. And that's when I started to just kind of keep adding, I just kept adding to it. And um, I think at some point there was enough, again, enough work, enough material that um, it was proposable if that's a word um and that's when i uh showed it to liz at at street noise books and when it started to you know the possibility of it becoming a book was for the first time really something that uh, came up for me and that's when i went back to it and started like filling in the gaps of the book because it's yeah i it was like there were it I did it, like I say, episodically, so there were parts of my life, parts of the process of drawing uh, Apsara engine, which is never mentioned in the book, but that's the book that I was working on. Um, parts of that process that I missed out in in writing the diary comics. So I went back, wrote, you know, filled in those gaps and wrote some longer chapters um, about, like, my childhood and stuff. And eventually it, it sort of, like, fattened up and became... You know, something that uh, that went beyond the initial idea of a diary comic and turned into something else completely. And I guess like approached memoir, and that's something I never would have really uh, imagined when I started it as a as a therapeutic exercise.
0: I wonder if having a diff like having um, I don't know what you would call Anjali as like a protagonist kind of. Puppet, or I, I don't know what you would call her as, you know, a stand-in.
1: I've been calling her like either an ambassador or substitute, which I'm—I'm I'm not liking that word anymore. So I—I I don't know. If I've been using the word ambassador for some reason, just because I think it's a nice word. Um,
0: did did having an ambassador make you feel? What were there things? that you could express through her or things that that character could do on the page that are different than what you would have done. Had you just been drawing yourself?
1: Yes. There are moments of fantasy in the book, which I'm not um, afraid to say because it is a memoir, but there are moments where Anjali does stuff that I, I guess would have thought of doing or have want. you know, would I mean, there's levels of desire that she expresses that I would not feel comfortable expressing as myself, so in that sense she's, you know, diving into my ego, or, or into my id maybe, um, and bringing and acting out all this stuff that um, that I wouldn't uh, act on myself so, I mean you, I know some of, there are some like sort of erotic encounters in the book which are more fantasy or uh, are more dreamlike that um, you know, are neither memoir or total it's just sort of like, you know, brainwaves, whether they're mine or Anjali's. Um, but there are moments where she's like ranting at people on the subway, which is, you know, stuff I would have bottled up inside of me that she gets to express, but I don't. Or that there's a scene where she's confronted by this hipster in a, at a party and he's just like kind of calling her out on her, her privilege and she, she kind of wails on him. And gets to to justify or validate herself or justify her project of starting a graphic novel and, like, you know, entering, going into a new career path given the opportunities that life or the circumstances that life has thrown at her. Um, And that's something I've been thinking about a lot too. Like, how do I justify myself doing this project? when I know a lot of other people can't. So that whole episode was a sort of uh, way of me thinking out and drawing out all the stuff that was making you know making me feel guilty about my project, which sounds slightly ridiculous now, but it's something I felt at the time I wanted to put on the page.
0: I really appreciated that part so much. I mean, that's like, hold on, my, my, my producer's growling. Um. Anyo. She also appreciated that part, oh, she's the sentry of of, of the house
1: editor and sentry.
0: I appreciated that part. I appreciated there is there is a panel where she has almost a hothead pie fantasy yeah. of stabbing these kind of bro dudes, dudes.
1: yeah that actually happened. i mean, minus the murder, it actually happened on the train up to um my wife's mom's place, and it was horrific. I mean, those guys were ha- having that conversation, and I was like, what I wouldn't do for, like, Hothead Paisan energy right now, and just, you know, kind of rip them to shreds, but, you know, there's only... So- I-, I-, I moved, I moved, I, moved, I'd, like, went to another seat, and just, I turned up my, my iPod to, like, 11 with, like, some punk rock, and I just I just uh, made them go away in my head, but it, w- it really stuck with me. It was a horrific uh like moment you know just for
0: listeners who haven't read it it's just it's it's it was basically these guys just like bragging about having sex with people and yeah, being was, gross yeah
1: and it was just, just very like misogynistic and homophobic and and just these you know these jerks just like taking up so much space with their voices it was gross
0: I think that I wouldn't have fared well in that situation. I think I would have screamed uh, at them or kicked their seat and gotten in uh-huh. big trouble. Yeah,
1: yeah. I tend <laughs> that happens to me in movie theaters, but that's why nobody wants to go with me to the movies anymore.
0: Oh my! I mean, I had, and anyway, I mean, I've just I've had different times where I've had these confrontations with men in public where it's uh-huh. just been just like some me being like can you just like get away from, can you back up and then some guy being like you're being a fucking cunt and I just screamed uh, I like, did you just say I was a fucking cunt like just yeah. screaming the thing that they said out loud right, and just right. but then like the whole rest this happened on my way into a Miyazaki movie and the whole time I was there seeing Princess the Mononoke contrast could be greater no, I was like at the science museum seeing a revival of Princess Mononoke by myself and I had my water bottle still full of water in case I needed to use it as a weapon I was, oh. like, shaking the whole movie, being like, how am I going to get to my car? i right. got to beat this guy in the head with my water bottle.
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> is this is when Ponyo comes in and, and, and like, tears the miscreant's head off, right? Which, which is what Ampersand does in the fantasy panel in the train.
0: Well, so Ampersand is the cat that appears in Spellbound. Um, is that cat a composite character?
1: she is. is a composite character, like, of... All the cats, all the cats I've ever loved. Um, One of whom is uh, sleeping on the bed right now. But um, yeah, he's he's kind of a composite, an uh, amalgam of of all these cats.
0: I knew that Anjali was a stand-in ambassador, Mm -hmm. but then I was shocked to find that the cat, that there was multiple cats. I was like, none of them are named Ampersand? Oh my God. I was scandalized (laughs) that multiple cats (laughs) but it's just it's such a perfect character and there is like that hothead paisan moment of your cat coming with you to just bite these guys and I really appreciated it Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Panyo Georges our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet thank you for listening and I'll see you next time